Oh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Leadership Magazine, probably not a lot of you because it's a magazine for uh, pastors or leaders of churches, but I was flipping, my husband takes Leadership Magazine, and I was flipping through one of the editions one time, and there was this little cartoon there of a church, and it had a billboard, and this is what the billboard said, the Light Church, L-I-T-E, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5 tithe, 15-minute sermon, 45-minute worship service, we only have eight commandments, your choice, and we use three spiritual laws, everything you've wanted in a church and less. <laughs> I thought, it was funny, but it was sad, because in my humble opinion, and you may not agree with me, I think most churches could have that billboard in front of their church. I've been to several of them. I've been to several services where there is no pricking of the conscience. There's no feeding of their souls. There's no commitment. There's no faith. In fact, I remember one, one church my husband pastored. I remember talking to a lady after church, and she said, I don't like coming to your church because it makes me feel so heavy when I leave. And I thought, well, that's a bigger commentary on you than on the church. Faith is one of the great conceptions of our Christian experience, and yet sometimes I wonder how many Christians really possess genuine saving faith. You might say, well, what is saving faith, Susan? Well, some people on one end of the spectrum will say this. Genuine saving faith is just merely believing that Jesus died for my sins. I walked an aisle. I went to a revival and got saved. I uh, got saved at church camp, etc. So they'll say, I got my fire insurance and I'm saved. And then you have the other side of the spectrum of people that will say this. Yes, I am saved and I am saved because of these things. I go to church every Sunday. I go to ladies Bible study every Tuesday night. I work in the nursery. I visit the widows in their affliction. I sing in the choir. I make meals for my neighbors who are sick. I do all those things. So my question to you tonight, which side of the camp is right? Faith, intellectual assent, or works? Which way produces genuine saving faith? Faith or works? Or both? Well, I trust after our study this evening, you're going to be able to marry the two together, as James does, faith and works, and see that the appropriate conduct that should flow out of genuine faith. In fact, I want you to read with me, if you would, James 2, 14 to 20. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you do not give them those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, I have faith. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. But will you not know, O man, that faith without works is dead? Now, I want to give you this evening a very simple outline. We're going to see four categories of faith, four categories of faith. First of all, we're going to see dead faith. I hope none of you have this. I hope none of you fall in this category. Dead faith, verses 14 to 17. 
Then we're going to see the disciples' faith. And this is where I'm praying that every one of you ladies fall in this category right here. The disciples' faith, verse 18. If you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, this is where you'll fall. Then we're going to see the demons' faith in verse 19. And then, lastly, a very sobering ending, a damning faith. And I'm not cussing, but that's biblical. Damning faith in verse 20. So a dead faith, a disciple's faith, demon's faith, and a damning faith. First of all, let's look at a dead faith. What does a dead faith produce? It produces nothing. Notice what James says. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, notice here that James uses the term brethren. Again, it's, as we've mentioned already in this epistle, it's kind of a softening, you know, it's like, now Maggie, let me share this with you. You know, it's a softening for something that you're getting ready to say to someone. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? And it's interesting, the Greek tense here, if someone says, is a continuous action. In other words, I have faith. I have faith. Faith is all I need. Faith is all I need. He just keeps on saying it. Here in, in verse 14, James is writing about someone who claims to have faith and yet no works. In fact, it's interesting. The Greek word here for faith, you know what it is? It's not pastua, which is a belief that is, that is a commitment. You know what it is? It's a knowledge. Just a knowledge. That's it. A simple assent or knowledge. Now, works here are acts in which a man proves that his faith is genuine. Now, what are some of the works that James already mentioned? Well, believers go through trials with what? Joy. That's a work. Believers, genuine believers, do not blame God when they are tempted to sin. Genuine believers respond to God's word correctly. They don't get angry. They receive it with meekness. Genuine believers, these are all works. They're doers of the word. They visit widows and orphans in their trouble. They keep themselves unspotted from the world. They don't show partiality or favoritism, and they show mercy. And when we come back next year, we're going to look at the fact that true believers bridle their tongue. Ladies, these are just some of the works that should be present in the life of a believer. So James says this, if you have faith, but you do not have works, can that faith save you? Let me ask you, can mental assent alone to the gospel save you? Can believing that Christ died and rose again save you? Can believing you're a sinner save you? Can going forward at the end of a church service save you? Can saying a prayer save you? Can saying, I accepted Christ in my life, save you? Can raising your hand in an evangelical service save you? Can any of those things save you? That's what James says. Can such faith save a person? Now, ladies, the grammar here is in such a negative in the Greek that it makes it clear, you know what the expected answer is? No. Absolutely not. What does it profit, my brother, though man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? No, can't. Ladies, James is contrasting genuine faith, which produces works. Genuine faith produces works versus a mere verbal profession that says, I accepted Christ. And ladies, I know this because I lived like that for 30 years. 
I had exactly what James is talking about, a dead faith, a mental assent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I got saved and baptized three times. My Sunday school teacher at age five said, how many of you don't want to go to hell? I don't want to go to hell. So I got saved and I got baptized. I got saved and baptized at 13, saved and baptized at 18. I had a mere claim to faith, a verbal profession, but it had no life-changing power in my life. What did Jesus say? By their fruits, you'll know them, right? Matthew 7, 20. You know, I think people today often are like I was as a little girl growing up. We make professions of faith and we're satisfied with that. You know, I got my fire insurance, so I don't have to live a life of obedience or holiness. And I want to encourage you over the holidays, if you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, and I know a lot of you will have opportunities to share with your family or with your friends, that is definitely very strange. I'm going to tell you a great danger is this. In sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone and telling them that. Can you cut this out? (laughs) That coming to faith in Jesus Christ simply means that you say a prayer or a flippant yes without changing your life. Do not share the gospel like that. In fact, the works to which James is referring here are the fruits of faith, the result of salvation, the life of a new birth. James says, what's the profit? What's the advantage of that kind of faith without works? And then he asks in verses 14 and then answers in verse 15 and 16 by giving us an example of one way to determine if your faith is real or not, whether it's authentic or false, genuine or spurious. Here's the example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them those things that are needful to the body, what does it profit? Now, when you think of the context of the chapter, James is probably referring to, remember, the poor man that came in and he was ignored and told to sit over there and, you know, get out of my way, and the favoritism that was showed to the rich. And so he very possibly is still reflecting, remember, because last week we were still talking about partiality and not showing mercy. And so he says, if this brother or sister is naked and destitute. Now, the word naked here could mean just that. I mean, completely no clothes. But more than likely, what he's talking about is a person who only has an inner garment. In the New Testament times, they usually had two garments, an inner garment and an outer garment. Remember when Jesus, in John 13, washed the disciples' feet, it said that he took off his outer garment, and then he began to kneel down, and he washed 24 dirty feet. And so in the biblical times, they'd wear two garments, probably like we do. You know, we wear slips and all that stuff, and then we have another garment on. But in the biblical times, you would not be seen without your outer garment unless you were getting ready to do hard manual labor. And so no person would be seen in public, usually with just, like, you wouldn't want to be seen. I hope you wouldn't want to be seen in public with just your slip on, but some of you might want to. I saw a lady on the plane last night that wanted to, but that's another story in itself. Don't get me started on that soapbox. So, we see this brother and this sister, or this sister, and they're naked. They just, all they have on is their inner garment. And not only do they not have their outer, outer garment, but James says they're destitute of daily food. That means they would be without the entire day's supply of food. Remember, biblical times, ladies, got, you have to think biblically. In biblical times, they were not paid on the 15th and the 30th of the month. That's not when they were paid. They worked hard every day, and they were paid at the end of the day. 
In fact, Matthew 20 is a good example, that parable that Jesus gives about the people that go out and sow and work hard and they receive a day's wages. So the person that James is writing about is without food and without clothes. They haven't received their money for the day to go buy food. You know what that means? They were cold and they're hungry. And here's what the person says in verse 16. Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Depart in peace, farewell. In fact, it was a signal to the other person the encounter was over and nothing further would be done to help. You know what this phrase is really saying? Go get yourself a good meal and some warm clothes or let someone else feed and warm you. In fact, it's interesting. You know this phrase is still used in the land of Palestine today to get rid of people. Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. You know what it means? God help you, but don't expect me to do it. Ladies, we do that today. And you all are laughing. We do that today. For example, we might say to someone in need, oh, and we've heard of a lot of needs tonight, right? Some serious needs. Oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm so sorry, Dixie. I'm so sorry about your situation. You know, God is sovereign. I'll pray for you. That's what we do. Yet, do we pray? Some of us say we pray and we don't. And if possible, do we try to meet the need of the person that has a need? Ladies, if these pious words are expressed without the accompanying acts, if we do not give the things that are needed, in this example specifically, it's food and clothing, then James says, what does it profit? What good does it do? What use is that? You know, the only answer is none at all. It's no gain to you or to them. In fact, consider what John, the aged old apostle, said. He said, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother has a need and shuts up his heart of compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? doesn't. Can't. We cannot do that. You know, it's sad to think if this person that James was writing about, if this was our mother, if this was our father, this was our child, our grandchild, our sister, our brother, most of us would not think of refusing them, would we? How can we treat our spiritual family this way? In fact, I read about a story that illustrates the opposite of this dead faith that James just described. Young man was a uh, former Moody Bible Institute student, and um, he had just gotten finished playing basketball at the YMCA, and he was on his way home. For those of you that don't know about Moody Bible Institute, it's in downtown Chicago. And so he was walking back to the campus, and he noticed a man standing on the street begging for money. And um, the young man was wise enough to stop and say, why do you need money? He said, well, I'm hungry. I, don't, I haven't eaten in a while. And so the young man took him inside to a restaurant and fed him. And while they were eating, he noticed that his clothes were, you know, pretty shabby, kind of like the one we were talking about in the first of James, you know, Smelly, the bag lady. And he noticed he needed some new shoes. So he took his shoes off and gave them to this man. So as he was leaving, he was still, you know, that encounter was over. He got an opportunity to share the gospel with that young man. As his encounter was over, he comes outside the restaurant, and there's a lady standing there at the bus stop. She's watching this whole thing, and she stops him. And she said, I just saw everything you did. And she said, why did you do that? And he, she said, people just don't do things like that anymore. Why did you do that? 
And so the young student told the woman why he did, and he got to share the gospel with her. In fact, they were talking so long that she missed the bus stop, and so he walked her to the next one. Because of this man's faith that produced works, he got to introduce two people to Christ. Two people. This is a true story, lady. Faith without works is dead. Ladies, that's an example of faith put into action by works. James teaches us that in the next verse, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it does not have works, is dead being alone. You know what it means? It has no effect. You know, we abound in mouth mercy, which is dead without deeds. It's like hearing without doing. Saying without doing is words without action. Ladies, dead faith will get no one into heaven. You may be like me. I could recite all the right words to you till age 30. I knew all the Bible lingo. But unless works are present, it's like a dead body in a coffin. You know, it looks like. I've seen a lot of people sitting, laying in a coffin. Unless it's been a long time, they look pretty real, don't they? But they don't have any life. It's dead. It's dead. Ladies, faith by itself is without accompanying fruits or results, and therefore it's dead. As John the Baptist said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Well, what does dead faith produce? Nothing. Nothing. In the next verse, we're going to see someone who's fighting this idea, and maybe you are right now. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I've kind of watched as we've kind of gotten more and more into James, and I think I was telling Debbie this. I said, I think I'm losing him. It's hard. This is not like Philippians that we've studied. This isn't like 1 Peter we've studied. This isn't like Colossians that we've studied. James is a hard book. It's in your face book. And so some of you might be struggling with what James is saying. And you know, I say, take it up with the Lord. I'm just, I'm just telling you what the text says. And so maybe you're arguing with me this evening or you're arguing with the Lord. Remember, you're not supposed to have that kind of reaction. You're supposed to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But James anticipated that some of his readers would be struggling, and so he goes on to verse 18 to talk about the disciples' faith, ladies, which produces something. Notice in verse 18. Yes, a man will say, you have faith, I have works. James says, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So here's one guy, and he's claiming to have faith. I have faith. I have faith. That's all I need. i got faith. And another who says, I've got works. One has one form of religion and one has another. Show me your faith, the objector says. In fact, the word show here means bring it to light. Demonstrate it. Show and tell. You who say that faith is enough, I can't see it. I can't see your religion. Prove to me that Christ is real. Prove to me that Christianity is real. You who are telling me that walking down an aisle is all you need, you who are telling me that praying a prayer is all you need, then show me your faith. I can't see it. Faith is invisible, right? We know that from Scripture. I can't see it. You show me your faith without your works. And you know what James says? I'll show you my faith by my works. I like this because James is willing to meet his own challenge and to evidence his faith in a way in which there can be no doubt Lady, if, if you try to disconnect faith from works, 
You know what it's what what it's like doing? It's like you're trying to walk with one foot. Faith and works is like two feet. They walk together. Faith and works. Faith and works. You can't take away one. You can't have just works. You can't take away works and then you have just faith. Faith and works are the two feet by which we walk in Christ. And when the Holy Spirit promotes one, he promotes the other. Ladies, if you're trying this evening to walk into heaven by your works, you're attempting the impossible, right? Doesn't Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we're saved, and not of ourselves, not of works, what? Lest any man should boast. However, if you're trying to walk into heaven tonight by faith alone, thinking you don't have to manifest a changed life, then that's impossible too, right? Well, James now confronts his objector on his own ground. By the way, I think this is another great principle for you to take over the holidays. Face people on their own objections. And here James is doing that in verse 19. And here we see the demon's faith. You know what it produces? Dread. Dread. Dead faith, dead faith produces nothing. The disciples' faith produces something. And here the demon's faith produces dread. James says, and here he's talking to his objector, you believe there's one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. James says, you believe there's one God, you believe you hold to a mental persuasion, you that are telling me that faith is all you need, you believe in one God, so do the demons. They have a mental persuasion that God is who he says he is, in fact, you know what James is doing? He's confronting or talking to the Jewish reader based on their own orthodox faith because do you know every morning and every night, do you know what the Jew would say? Hear, O Israel, from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. James says, if you believe in one God, you do well. You know what he's saying? Orthodox is better than heresy. Ladies, there's no irony here. James is painfully aware that an intellectual confession alone is tragic. In fact, he even finishes the sentence with this. Even the demons believe and tremble. You know, the demons believe the same thing you do. They believe that there is a God. In fact, in the word, the Greek here, believe means to, again, have a mental persuasion. Mental persuasion. It's not pastuous, which is a belief that leads to a commitment. This belief, this mental persuasion is not saving faith. And yet James says, you know, these demons have more on the ball than we do. They at least tremble. They tremble. Interesting Greek New Testament word. Only time this word is used in the New Testament. You know what it means? It, remain, it refers to a man whose hair is standing on end. Have you ever, I picture, you know, somebody putting their finger in the light in the socket and they... Their hair stands on end and they shudder and shake. In fact, the present tense of tremble conveys this image as their reaction when the demons ultimately face the reality of an eternal God. Ladies, demons believe, but their belief, their faith does not get them into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm glad because I don't really want to share, you know, the kingdom of heaven with a bunch of demons. Do you? The demons are aware of God's power. And yet they're smart enough to tremble, which is more than can be said for most people today that I run into. Most people today that I run into have no fear of God. 
Ladies, the demons believe in the same manner as the person who believes there is a God but is not godly. We need to be reminded that the faith that saves must be more than just a mental, intellectual assent that Christ died for my sins. The demons believe that. And yet they don't possess genuine saving faith. In fact, if you read national polls on this subject, you know that the great majority, of course now, atheism has crept in so much into our country, but still, believe it or not, most Americans believe in God. They still do. I don't know how much longer that'll be true, but right now, most Americans still believe in God. In fact, I would encourage you, over the holidays, just ask people, you know, as you see them in the malls and the grocery stores or you know, you'll probably be out and about more, your family at Christmas or Thanksgiving. Just ask them if they believe in God. Do you believe in God? I think anyone with a sound mind can come to the conclusion there has to be a God behind this creation, behind the human body, behind the universe. In fact, I always find it interesting when I'm getting to know someone, I'll usually, if I have time, get to that topic. Well, do you know Christ or are you a Christian? And they say, yeah, yeah, sure I am. And so I'll ask them about their salvation experience, and usually it's something, you know, I prayed a prayer, or I made a decision at church camp or at a revival or something. But then, you know, you start getting to talk a little bit more. Well, where do you go to church? Or, well, I don't go to church. Well, um, do you, you know, have any relationship with God now? Do you, read his, do you read his word? Do you pray? Oh, no, I don't do any of that. I don't get with the saints. I have no hunger for God, no hunger for his word. And I'm like, well, where is that kind of Christianity in the Bible? I don't see it. Ladies, Jesus himself, James' brother, Jesus, taught on this very same thing. Few there would be that find it. In fact, I want you to turn back to Luke 13 because a lot of times we look at Matthew chapter 7, that passage that you all are probably getting sick of me quoting this year. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then the fact on that day, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do that? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But turn to Luke. 13, because this is a little bit worded just a little bit different. Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. Talking about Christ, it says, He went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few that are going to be saved? And he said to them, notice his answer, Strive to enter in at the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he shall answer and say to you, I know you not from where you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he he shall say, I tell you, I know you not from where you are. Depart from me. All you workers of iniquity, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves will be thrust out. Someone said, Lord, is it really, is it just a few that are going to be saved? And they're going to claim, well, you know, Lord, we heard you teach. We heard you do all that. And notice what he says. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Yes, you made a mental assent that I am God. You even came and heard me hear me teach when I was in Jerusalem. But did you ever have a relationship with me? Did that faith in God produce something? Jesus says, few there be that find it. In fact, turn over to John 2. This is interesting also. John chapter 2. 
beginning in verse 23. Some of you are familiar with this passage. Again, talking about Christ. Now, when he's, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles, which he did, of course they did. But notice, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew all man. And he needed not that any should testify of man. Why? He knew what was in man. Yeah, we like these miracles, Jesus. This is great. Heal my mom. Heal my dad. Heal my sickness. And they believed in him. Of course they did. But Jesus, noticed he didn't commit himself to them. Why? He knew what was in their heart. He says he knew what was in man. He knew it was a spurious faith. They just had a mental assent. They liked the miracles. In fact, it's interesting, the very next chapter, we have one of those spurious disciples, Nicodemus, who what? Came to Jesus and said, hey, how can I be born again? I want to start a new life. Ladies, if our belief in Jesus Christ does not produce a holy life and good works, then our belief is a mental assent. Otherwise, demons would be justified and saved by that kind of faith, right? Instead, their intellectual understanding of God only produced fear of doom, not fruits of repentance toward God and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, James ends this section repeating what he's already said in verse 17, in verse 20. And ladies, this is the last faith, the damning faith, which produces condemnation. A damning faith, which produces condemnation. Notice what he says. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In other words, are you willing to know? I guess I would ask you guys that, you women. Are you willing to know? Are you resistant? Evidently, this objector that James is writing to was resistant. Are you willing to recognize this? Do you really want clear proof? In fact, it's interesting, the word O is used sparingly in the Greek. You don't find this very many times in the New Testament. And when it's used, the word O is used for the purpose of extreme emphasis. Oh, foolish man. Oh, foolish man, which means empty. Empty creature, void of understanding. You're lacking common sense. In fact, this person supposes to be very knowledgeable, right? I have faith. I believe in God. And yet James says faith without works is dead. It's barren, it's idle, it's useless, it's unproductive. Oh, foolish man, will you know faith without works is dead? In fact, it's interesting the word dead is used of money to describe earning money that, excuse me, money that earns no interest. Have you ever invested money in the bank and had it not earn any interest? Of course you haven't. Your money earns interest in the bank. But this word dead is talking about money that is invested, and it earns no interest. Faith without works is dead. It's unproductive. Ladies, genuine faith produces a changed life. That's what James is trying to say. We're going to get more into that next year when we come back. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why you were created. In Christ Jesus for good works, which God has foreordained that you should walk in them. Ladies, that's why God saved you. So you should walk in good works. Faith without works doesn't work. It's not working. There is no such thing as a light church. There's no such thing as a light faith. A real faith is committed. 
Faith wholeheartedly follows the master and proves itself genuine by reaching out to those in need. So what does dead faith produce? Nothing. What, do, what does the disciples' faith produce? Something. The demon's faith produces dread, and a damning faith produces condemnation. Is your faith a faith that works, or is your faith dead? As we close this semester, I can think of no greater blessing, ladies, if you have not committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you do it now. And yet I can think of no greater tragedy than to come to the end of your life thinking that you are redeemed when you are not. And so how I want to close this session is a little bit different and um, um, because I feel that it is very, I think this is a very serious topic and I believe that it is imperative that um, as we go away from one another for the next, what, six to eight weeks, that if the Lord is dealing with you or the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart or maybe you're trying to evangelize someone that has a spurious faith, they have mental assent, a mental persuasion. I know some of you are married to um, husbands that have no interest in things of Christ. Some of you have parents that have no interest in the things of Christ, and yet they claim, I have faith. I have faith. I believe I'm going to heaven, and yet there are no works. And so what I want to do, and if you have the book Life Dominating Sins, it's in the back of that. These, this is a series of questions from 1 John, which also is a great book. And don't worry, we won't do that next because we'll be down to zero if we do two whammy books right together. But 1 John is also a book which helps you to examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith. And I just want to ask you a series of questions. You don't have to answer them out loud, um, but answer them in the privacy of your heart, Okay. Number one is this, do you have fellowship with Christ and the Father? Do you have fellowship with Christ and the Father? John says, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that, do you have an interact, you know, you have fellowship with your husband, right? I hope you do if you're married. You have fellowship with your sisters, right? guys talk and chatter all the way home do you have fellowship do you talk with God does he talk to you do you read his word are you in communion with him do you have fellowship with him that's a good indication that you are redeemed if not red flag ladies number two are you sensitive to sin sensitive to sin if you say you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness John says you lie and do not the truth now what I mean by that is you know, you, things come up in your life and, and you have a choice or you know that you've just lied to someone or uh, I had a lot of opportunities this weekend where I had to really stand strong on some issues. Are you sensitive to sin? Does it bother you when you sin? Does it bother you when you lie? Does it bother you when you lose your temper? Um, are you sensitive to sin? Or can you just keep on doing those things and you have no sensitivity to that? If you're sensitive to sin, that's a good indication that you truly know Christ. Number three, do you obey God's word? Do you obey God's word? First John 2, 4 says this. He that says, I know him, I know him, does not keep his commandments. John says, a liar. And the truth isn't it. Ladies, I'm not saying this stuff. It's in the word of God. You can go home and read it. He who says, I know him, I got faith but doesn't obey is a liar. Do you obey God's word? In other words, you know, you're looking in the scriptures and you see things and you know you need to change your life. 
are you quick to change? Number four, do you reject this evil world? Do you reject this evil world? John says, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, lust, flesh, lust, the eyes, pride, life, is not the Father, but is of the world. If you love the world, if you have a relationship with the world, in fact, when we get into James chapter 4, if you love the world, James is going to call you an adulteress. Do you not know the friendship of the world is enmity with God? You're at war with God. Are you pulled more by things of the world? Is that where your time is spent? Uh, are you involved in worldly pleasures? Worldly, you know, this weekend I had a situation come up where my sisters wanted to do something. And I said, no, I will not do that. Um, but, you know, no, I didn't have, no one knew that I, you know, no one would know. I could tell them to keep it secret. But I was not going to be involved in worldly things. Or is that how your life is governed? Do you reject this rule? Number five, do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Decreasing pattern of sin in your life. First John 3, 9 says this. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Why? For his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, ladies, that does not mean you'll be sinless. Nobody in here is sinless, and you will probably sin before you go to bed tonight. If not, in action, in your thoughts. You're probably sinning right now towards me saying, I wish you would be quiet and sit down. What John is saying there, whosoever practices sin is not of God. In other words, you just keep on sinning in the same thing. Is your life different? I think a better way to reword this question is this. Is your life different tonight than it was a year ago? Have you grown in Christ Jesus in the last year? Do you see spiritual growth in your life? Are you sinning less and less? Are you loving believers more and more? Are you a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Number five, do you love other Christians? Do you love other Christians? 1 John three fourteen says this. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that does not love his brother abides in death. Do you love these people in here? You say, no, I can't stand them. You've got a problem, ladies. Do you like to go to church? Do you like to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you rather be with Christians than unbelievers? That's a good indication that you're a Christian if you love to be with believers. Number seven, do you experience answered prayer? Do you experience answered prayer? Listen to 1 John 3, 22. Whatever we ask, we receive of him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. What have you prayed about in the last month? I mean, I hope you keep some type of a prayer journal. Have you prayed about various things? And has God answered those prayers? That's a good indication that you are a genuine believer if God is answering your prayers. Now, he may not answer all of them, and he may tell you no, and he may tell you to wait. But you should have an active prayer life and God should be answering your prayers. And then the last one, last question. Do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life? In other words, do you sense his enabling, his power, his conviction, his leading? 1 John 4, 13 says this, By this we know that we dwell in him and he in us. How? How do we know this? Because he's given us his spirit. This is how we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. You know, when you do something wrong, are you convicted? When you know that there's things that you, it's impossible, there's no way you're going to be able to do this, and yet God the Holy Spirit gives you the power and the enabling, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
If you could not answer yes to those questions, I would encourage you to really examine yourself. In fact, if you answered no to all those, I would encourage you to turn around and go the other way because you're heading for a road of destruction. If you couldn't answer those in a positive way. Ladies, do not let iniquity be your ruin. Walk down the road that leads to eternal life. Tonight, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Tonight is the day. Tonight is the accepted time. Tonight is the day of salvation. I pray that the Lord will um, use these words. I know James is a very, very in-your-face strong book, but I ask the Lord that he would use the words of his servant James, his brother James, to um, encourage you and strengthen you in your walk with Christ. And I look forward to seeing you on the 9th of December and look forward to the discussion we're going to have in just a minute. But let me close in prayer. Father, um, I come to you this evening and I want to pray for these dear sisters in Christ. And I do pray, Father, that they are um, truly walking with you. I pray that they each know you as personal Savior and Lord. I pray that their faith is not just a mental assent to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I pray that each one of their faiths hath produced works. And Lord, I also pray that if there's any in the room this evening that are banking on their salvation by their works, I pray that um, they would also examine themselves, realizing that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, by your mercy that you save us. Lord, I again want to pray for those not with us this evening that you would um, encourage, bless, and comfort them. And if there's anything that we can do as as sisters in Christ to encourage them, we do not want to be like this one in James who sees someone that's naked, naked and destitute of food and we just say, yeah, I'll pray for you and hope everything's okay. Remember God's sovereign. I pray that we would go the extra mile and reach out and um, show that our faith is genuine by our works. Pray for the discussion to follow, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified for Christ's sake. Amen.